Okay, here we are, June the 28th, 2015, lecture discussion number 202 on the Book of Romans, and we remain at Luke 17. For those of you who have missed a few lectures, won't mention your names, but your initials are Kathy. Um, but we're at uh, Luke 17 and, of course, Matthew 24 today, While I ex- and I expect to be here for quite a while. There's a lot here. And so you can get ahead of me by continuing to read 17 and 24. Luke 17, Matthew 24. And so far, what we've done is we've put on the table, uh, I'll kind of try to do this with a little bit of order. We've put on the, uh, we'll put it on the board here. We started with the ten lepers. That's how this all begins. Once you recognize that the ten lepers are, are significant to what follows, that helps you a great deal. Because uh, I have all ten healed, but one, one of them returns, and that of course was the Samaritan, right? And that is greatly significant, as you would expect, right? So whenever you see a Samaritan, pay attention. I always ask, why a Samaritan? Well, it's obvious why a Samaritan. This is omniscient God that healed these ten lepers, and he knew there was a Samaritan in there, didn't he? Why is there a Samaritan in there, and why is it that only the Samaritan comes back? Why didn't the other nine come back? What's the obvious question about the other nine? Where did they go? Why did they go there? And we'll get into that in the weeks to come because that's very important to Hebrews 6, by the way. But let me keep going. Next was Christ's response to the question of the Pharisees. So I start with the ten lepers. And what comes immediately after that is the Pharisees asking a question, right? And every time the Pharisees ask a question, what is the purpose of the question? It's a trap, isn't it? And they're trying to trap omniscient God who is outside of time. Good luck with that. And then after he answers the question to the Pharisee, he has a subsequent explanation. That's Luke 17, 22 through 17 to his disciples. So that's how we, be, how we, well, I can't even spell disciples anymore. I put a five in disciples for those of you who are listening on the internet pretending uh, that it was an S. And within this subsequent explanation to his disciples, um, is this cryptic, remember Lot's wife. And I have been asserting that we have hardly any understanding of remember Lot's wife. I start by, by reminding you, this is a direct order. Those of you who have been in the military, this is the commander of the universe giving his, his soldiers a direct order. Uh, this is a commandment from the Lord God himself. So somebody is supposed to remember Lot's wife. First question you ask is, is it me? Do we have to remember her? Who, who is to remember her and what is it exactly we're remembering about her? Most of the time, I will tell you again, what you think is to be remembered is not it. We've only got about four choices, actually. More, more would agree with three, but no one ever chooses the right one that I find. Typically, I know there's, that's a general statement. Generalities are generalities because they're generalities. does not make them invalid, however. But after we get through the command to remember Lot's wife, we're going to have to add the parable of the woman and the unjust judge 
Luke 18 obviously follows Luke 17. Again, that's complex math. And then after that is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, uh, Luke 18, 9 through 17. And, of course, once we've established that list, I won't put the other two on because I don't want to run out of time. I've got a lot to do here today. But once we have established that list, I'm going to focus right here on the first one. I've got to deal with leprosy and I have to deal with Samaritan. Where will I go? If, I, if I'm going to look at Samaritan, where am I going to go for Samaritan? Obviously, I'm going to go to Luke 10:25 through 37, where Jesus answers another Pharisee question with it's almost identical he, in the sense of the order. He answers another Pharisee question with a parable of what we call the Good Samaritan. And everybody knows the parable of the Good Samaritan, don't you? I hope you do. Hopefully, um, you'll notice that that connection between the Samaritan that returns and the Samaritan parable. And I do. I suppose that you're all familiar with it. But let's go take a really fast run through it and just to re-educate ourselves a little bit and get get as much of it instilled in us today as we can. I have to tell you, I'm, I'm very low energy today, so hopefully I'll perk up as I pour more medicine into me. So we'll start at Luke uh, 10, 25 is where the parable of the Good Samaritan begins. And behold, oh my goodness, I'll try my best to do it justice. And behold, stop, stop what you're doing. Don't read another word. What's coming next? Something absolutely extraordinary. This will be extraordinary. A certain Torah expert. What that means, it says lawyer in your text. What it means is an expert in Old Testament law. So who is he? Likely a Pharisee, right? And behold, a certain Pharisee stood up and tested him, which is what they do. Tried to trap him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, Christ said to the Pharisee, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? And so he answered, the Pharisee answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Christ said to the Pharisee, You have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. But he wanted, the Pharisee, wanted to justify himself, continues the trap. And who is my neighbor? Now, that's a trap. So you have to start to ask yourself, how is it that the Pharisee is trying to trap God here? And Jesus answered. Then Jesus answered with this parable of the Good Samaritan. An amazing story. Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, 
by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring uh, on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? That's how Christ answers the trap. And the Pharisee said, to Christ, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Now, that interchange between that learned Pharisee and God, something we'll get to a little bit more next week. But for today, let's just kind of go through it. A man, a certain man, went where? Down. I have a man going down. From Jerusalem. What's Jerusalem? What is the derivative of Jerusalem? Jehovah Jireh Salam. God provides peace. It is what Abraham said after his, after that fantastic typology with Isaac on the mountain, right? The same mountain Christ ultimately chooses to be, to stage his crucifixion on. A certain man went down from Jehovah Jireh, I'm sorry, Jehovah Jireh Salam. God provides peace. God provides himself. A certain man went down from God's provided peace to Jericho. He goes to Jericho. Why did God use Jericho? So I now know one is God provides peace. What's the primary meaning of Jericho? Well, there's two primary meanings. Uh, it's an utterly destroyed city, by the way. Know that. That's how it's described in and Joshua, one meaning has a fragrance connotation or a, a flower fragrance assist, as kind of a meaning. And the second has breath. Now, there's a third that you'll hear it called the city of the pagan moon sometimes. But I think the two primary ones is this fragrance and breath. And breath has a, a living soul contextual fit to it when you put it all together. And I think that's the actually the one that most applies here based on the meaning of of the entire parable. So a certain man left the place of God's provided peace and went down to where souls are lost, or if you will, his living breath was taken. The certain man fell among thieves. The certain man was stripped, naked, wounded, and left for half dead, or left half dead. Now think about that again. Naked, wounded, Dead. Who am I describing to you now? Start thinking about that. Note, by the way, that half dead is obviously differentiated from wounded. They're not the same. So, obvious question, what exactly is the difference between half dead and wounded? What is the definition exactly of half dead? If I have half dead, what must I have? i got to have whole dead. Can I have quarter dead? So obviously I've got to figure out what half dead with respect to whole dead. If I have whole dead, that's complete death, right? Does the Bible talk about absolute death anywhere? It does. 
Absolutely it does. It does in Revelation 20, verse 14. What does it call it? Second death. Absolute death. Physical death and spiritual death. Absolute death. So, if whole dead is complete absolute death or second death, then what is half dead? It's going to be first death. So I have first death and second death. What is first death? Physical death. So is the certain man first dead? That's something for you also to ponder. I don't have time to keep beating on it, but let's just keep going. By chance. says so. By chance. Here's God talking about chance. Does that make you interested? It should make you interested. Why does God say chance? Is there any chance with God? Outside of time, omniscient God? By chance, a certain priest. See, I've got a certain man, and now I've got a certain priest. I want to know who these guys are, don't you? Why did he say certain man, certain priest? So by chance, a certain priest came down that what? Let me read it to you. A certain priest came down that road. So what has he done? He's come down the what? The same road. A certain man goes down the road. How to work out for him? Thieves stripped him naked, killed him, wounded him. And now I have a priest coming down the exact same road. A certain priest came, traveled down that same road. So I have a certain man and now a certain priest in this parable. Both are traveling down this, on the same road. The road that's going to lead to what? Being street, stripped naked, naked and half dead after you've been severely wounded. What's going to happen to the priest? How's he going to do? He's going to be wiped out by the thieves as well, isn't he? What will the thieves do to the priest? Just asking. The certain priest now saw the certain man. But the certain priest passed by on the other side. Now, why? Why did he pass by on the other side? Those are Who's giving you these details? Jesus Christ, God himself. So the certain priest passed by on the other side. What's his motive for being on the other side? Why did he pass by? Why didn't he slow down? Why didn't he stop? He didn't stop. He's on the other side. He saw him and he kept moving, traveling on the same road by chance. Likewise, a Levite, same road, looked. And he passed on the other side. Again, why? I submit they have the same reason for being on the other side. I submit they have the same reason for passing and not stopping. Now we have to just figure that out. But not the certain Samaritan. Calls him a certain Samaritan. So I got a certain man, a certain priest. I just have apparently a general Levite. But now I have a certain Samaritan. A certain Samaritan came down, he's descended down, he has journeyed, it said, a certain Samaritan journeyed, he saw the certain man, he came to where the certain man was, it says so, came where he was, 
So I have a certain Samaritan who descends, who comes exactly to where that certain man was, that was naked, dead, wounded. Saw the certain man, came to the certain man, and had compassion on the certain man. Went to the certain man. So let's go over it again. i got to keep repeating it just in case. Descended, journeyed, saw, same side of the road, stopped. Compassion is what? Mercy, love. What did the certain Samaritan do? Bandaged the wounds of the certain man. Poured oil and wine. Brought him to an inn. Put him on an animal. His own animals. Animal. Took care of the once dead man. First dead. Half dead. And obviously all of that's got incredible meaning, doesn't it? There's bandages. There's oil. There's wine. They have, they have great meanings. And I will submit to you the learned Old Testament scholar, the Pharisee, knew exactly what all of this meant because of the Old Testament relationship to these terms. Unfortunately, we lack the time today to, to prospect into all those obvious questions, but I just want you to note the order. The Good Samaritan covers the certain man with cloth bandages, wraps him in bandages. He bathes him in oil and wine. He brings the man to a keeper. On the next day, the compassionate Samaritan departs, and he leaves two days' wages. Two days, saying, when I come again, so I have the first coming of the Good Samaritan, and clearly I'm going to have a second coming of the Good Samaritan. And he left two days' wages. So the loving healer, with his knowledge of medical procedures, lifts up a half-dead man, raises him up, raises up a half-dead man, after he's covered him in oil and wine, And then transports him and places him, shows mercy on him. And I I hope that it's obvious to you, and it was immediately obvious, and I know some of you already knew it was obvious, that Jesus Christ has done what? He has inserted himself into this parable. And he did it on purpose, duh. And he did it as a response to the question asked, the trap asked to him by a certain Pharisee. Torah expert. Now, many have speculated who this Torah expert is. Now, we'll get into those, uh, but you can begin to speculate. Just so all of us are free to speculate. This uh, Christ says to this certain Torah expert, go and do likewise. When Christ says to you, go and do likewise, how you do it? Anyway, it can't be, there's no dispute that Christ has inserted himself, uh, that, the, that the Samaritan has a Christophany, or a, I'm sorry, a, a Christology to it. There's a typology here. Well, who's the certain man? Uh, who's the certain Old Testament law scholar? Who's the certain priest? Who's the Levite? Who's the innkeeper? What's the animal? What's the purpose of the animal in the story? 
Who are the thieves? What are they stealing? Why do they do what they do? What's the oil? What's the wine? What's the bandages? Why is he coming back for him? So always, 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 when you're reading a parable that comes directly from God himself, and I can't overemphasize this, you've got to know this is coming from God himself, so I've got to know first right off the bat, these are the words of, of God of all creation, the Ancient of Days, the I Am, and he's constructed this parable. And I need to start asking myself, it has a relationship somehow to real events. It might even be a real event. Uh, he is—he can do so many things, can't he, being God? And he's given it to me or to us to consider it. How First, I've got to say, okay, it's God's words. And then I've got to remind myself, how much depth do you think are present in these verses? We can't comprehend it. I, I approach it saying, I have no idea I could spend my lifetime on this thing. I can't imagine the depth that's here. Do not, do not for an instant ever say to yourself, this is a simple story, I got it. You don't have it. You'll never have it. These are the words of God. You'll have some of it, pieces of it. You spend your lifetime on the good Samaritan. As I point out to you, I've got to go to the ten lepers now just because i got a Samaritan. I got, to, I got a Samaritan woman. I got Samaritans everywhere. I got to go assemble all the Samaritans. How long is that going to take us? Never say, "Ooh, oh, that was a simple parable." But at least, if you can't extrapolate out like we're supposed to and go where we're supposed to go, and know that Christ is in the story, and then ask, "What? Why is he in the story?" He's in the story. Put himself in the story. What happened? What is the conclusion of the story? The conclusion of the story, go and do likewise. That's the conclusion. What does that mean? What happened to that lawyer, if you will, that Old Testament scholar, law scholar? Lawyer has a different meaning than than today. Do, stop the simple story thinking. To do so just undermine. I know worse than that. It profanes the very definition of thinking. You're not thinking if you're, you if you consider this simple. And as you know, one aspect every time God, every time Jesus God, every time Jesus Christ is telling this parable, what's happening simultaneously? The parable is occurring, just like. The parable of the sower. He's talking about sowing. He's in that story too. Who's he? He's the sower. As he's talking about the sowing and the birds coming and the thorns growing and the path and all of that stuff and the good soil. As he's talking about the sowing, the sowing is happening. The birds are coming. The thorns are growing. It's simultaneous. It's also the case with the parable of the two sons. You might call it the prodigal son, but it's not the prodigal son. Two sons. And that, by the way, the fact that they have this simultaneous um, aspect is true of all of God's parable. And people have asked me, how does he do that? Uh, he, he, duh. He's the creator of time. Why does he do it is the correct question. 
But for today, recognize that the words of Jesus Christ, mighty God, are stunningly, incomprehensibly deep. And his words are constantly pushing us to salvation. Jesus Christ is always in his first coming, just as he does in the parable, saving people that are wounded and naked and dead. It's what he's doing. It's always saving. It's what he does. His very name means salvation. The very purpose of his first descent is to find the lost, which he can't help but find because he's omniscient God. And he goes to them. He goes to all of us. His first descent is to save the lost. What's the obvious question? When I come again, I will repay you. So who's this guy that's going to be repaid? We have to find out that next week. So, he intends to save in his first coming. He is going to do something different in his second. And he loses none. Jesus Christ loses none. None means none. So all of that's now in the discussion, and once we've got that established, we've just really quickly done the Samaritan, apply those principles of the Samaritan to remember Lot's wife. What is his purpose for saying those three words? And again, it's quite common to read or find or hear all kinds of stuff, but one thing that you read a lot is comes from the atheistic philosophers, and they question Christ did everything, but the, primarily they question why this inclusion of himself in his own parables. Why does he say these things? Um, they don't understand it, and, and so they have absolutely no concept of the meaning of, of, of what those words mean. But we know that he is always saving. When he says something, he is always saving somebody. Uh, and why does he include himself into everything? Because he's the only life there is. If his point is to save somebody, he has to do it. There's no other salvation apart from him. There is no other life but him. He is the only life. And there's no one else that can be glorified but God. And he's God. Okay. We left off last Sunday at the dissection. And I'll run this on the board for you really fast too. (coughs) The dissection of Matthew 24. Uh, it, uh, uh, actually, all of it, 1 through 44, but mostly uh, 24 through uh, 32 through 44. You can start at verse 1 if you prefer, but we're just going to stick here for a little bit today. Oops, forgot the 24. And what we what we went through, the order is, we saw the fig tree parable, right? And the ninth step of the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. Whenever you see Hebrew betrothal ceremony, you're in marriage. Let me say quickly about marriage. God has hidden his plan of salvation in marriage. He does it right here in Matthew by putting the ninth step. The ninth step is the taking of the bride or the taking of the church, if you will. Some would say rapture. Uh, um, There is a tremendous spiritual truth in the ordinance of marriage. When you begin to destroy that truth, uh, you begin to destroy everything. 
in the sense that you are attacking salvation. Now, you're never going to, I don't care how much they want to destroy it, they're never going to be able to destroy it. It's God's plan uh, to save. Just pay attention to uh, how many of them know it? Hardly any. But recognize what's happening in our world today. Things are, are quickly reaching a putrid level. How much longer we have on this earth, I don't know. I, wouldn't, I would never even profit a guess. But I can see the collapse of the European economic system right on the doorstep. I can see total war in the Middle East. I can see the degradation of the society, of the morality of the society. I can see the undermining of the ordinance of God. I can see uh, the mocking of God's truths. And eventually, I know, all of those must happen. Take comfort that they all must happen. How much time we got? Who knows? Obviously, my advanced age, I'm betting on the near. Definitely the signs of the end of the age of the Gentiles are, is here. I'll prove that again today. So, we have the fig tree and now we have the ninth step of the Hebrew betrothal ceremony where he talks about our now, whenever God talks about time, pay attention, because he's the creator of time and he's outside of time. So whenever God says, only the Father knows the hour, well, that makes absolutely no sense on the surface. makes fantastic sense if you recognize that it's the ninth step of the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. And then after that, he goes to the days of Noah. He brings up Noah for us. And uh, then he starts to talk about two in a field. Uh, I don't know why I'm reverbing like that, but I know Teresa Thee will fix it. And then we have two grinding in a mill. Uh, and then uh, this aspect of taken and left. Uh, and then once again, he makes a reference to time again. He brings up hour of the thief. Just separate hour from thief, and I'll make you go back and forth between the ninth step and the thief hour. Those hours have to have uh, some kind of connection, and they do, of course. And that's where we were, and we were beginning to add components of Matthew 24, 32 through 44 with those of Luke 17, 20 through 37. Essentially, what we're doing is performing addition, but there is a little bit of a subtraction concept to it as well when I notice that two are the same. But most of the time, I'm looking at what's different and adding each to the other. And we're creating a whole of the two passages, the 24 of Matthew uh, 32 through 44 and Luke 17, 20 through 37. We're combining them into one piece. And we're doing that in an attempt to establish what is what references the sign of the taken bride and what is the sign of the wife of God. So in other words, I'm saying to you that I have the two signs in this in these passages, some of which references the sign of the taken bride or the rapture of the church, and the other references the others represent uh, are reference to the sign of the wife of God or the nation of Israel. 
So which is assigned to the rapture of the church and which is assigned uh, or is assigned for the nation of Israel? That's what we're trying to do by combining Matthew 24 and Luke 17. And as we discussed last Sunday, it's clear that in Matthew 24, 36 through 42, so right at verse 36 of Matthew 24, God changes the subject. God changes the subject back to the third question of Matthew 24, 3. Now, I know, I, I know, that seems difficult and confusing. I won't, I won't uh, try to tell you that it is easy. It's not. But it isn't as difficult and confusing as, as it is sometimes made. It's actually just a process of knowing there are three questions being asked here. And then figuring out which question Jesus, God, is answering. And once you've accomplished that first step, that's when it gets difficult. Once you know there's three questions and you know what part of the, each of these passages is applicable to which question. Once you've got that, then it becomes hard. Does that in, make you enthusiastic? Probably not. Because once you, um, once you get that first step done, it becomes necessary to the, to add the other accounts in the Gospels of uh, to this. There are other accounts of these questions and other accounts of these subjects in Luke and Mark. So I have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and I've got to accumulate all of it in order to get a full representation to get the complete answer. So to, to rephrase that or to restate it, Matthew has a portion of these three answers. There's three questions. Matthew has a portion of the three answers to those questions. So does Mark and so does Luke. So to get complete answers all put together for me, I've got to go accumulate it all, figure out which part goes to which question, and do the correct assigning, right? So that's not as uh, simple, but it's also not as difficult um, as you might think. And hopefully that makes some sense. Probably not. And just remember the cliffside motto, right? Which is repeat, repeat the repeat, and repeat the repeating of the repeat. Eventually, I, I just wear you down. It's my diabolical plan to erode your will. So, got all of that? Let me erase that. And let's go and put the three questions on the board again. How am I doing? Oh, my goodness, I'm screaming along. You do not think so. Don't worry. No one ever does. Question number one. Again, Matthew 24, 3. We'll leave Matthew up there. Matthew 24, 3. The disciples ask Christ three questions. I keep beating this into you because, again, this is how... You will solve all of this stuff, including remember Lot's wife. First question that they ask is, when will Jerusalem uh, be destroyed? Jer- oops. They want to know that because he says, do you see this temple? Pretty soon it's going to be gone. So when will Jerusalem, if you want to think temple, both put them side by side, that'll be fine. When will Jerusalem slash the temple be destroyed? That's the first question.
Question number two. When will you, Jesus, they ask him, when will you return as the king of Israel, Messiah king? What's that? That's the second coming. When is the second coming of the Good Samaritan? Make a better be D. When will you come as king and establish the, the uh, and you'll rule the world? Okay? The third question they ask Christ is when will the age of the Gentiles end? So once again, those are the three questions. You have to know it. You don't have to. You ought to know it. Um, and Jesus answers these questions, but he does not answer them in order. And that's what it gets people in so much trouble. He answers this question first. He answers the end of the age of the Gentiles first. He does that in Matthew 24, 4-8. through 8, Ending with all of these things are the beginning of sorrow. So let's go to 24.8 really fast. And no... Uh, fell out of the, it's my marker, by the way. So that I can find the text quicker as a professional. So they ask these three questions. I'll read it again. Now he came, uh, now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? In other words, when will Jerusalem be destroyed? When are you coming as Messiah King? And what is the end of the age of the Gentiles? And now, Matthew 24, 4 through 8 is the answer to the third question. He does not answer them in order. Got that so far? Jesus answered and said to them, world war. I cut to the chase. In other words, the singular prominent sign that is telling us the end of the age of the Gentiles is on the precipice, on the cup, if you will. The singular prominent sign is worldwide war. That happened, as you know, 1914 to 1945. So the, the prominent sign. They were saying, what will be the prominent sign? How will we know the end of the age of the Gentiles is here? And he said, worldwide war. We have already seen the prominent sign. So we now know without any, definitively, without any possibility of doubt, what started in 586 B.C. with Nebuchadnezzar is coming to the end. Very soon. And he said, that is the beginnings of sorrows. When you see that, the beginnings of sorrows. Now, that means when the age of the Gentiles ends, we have the beginning of sorrows. Let me read it to you. Uh, He said, for nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Worldwide war, there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places or diverse places. All these, the beginning, the beginnings of sorrows, or the beginning of sorrows, which means... The end of the age of the Gentiles is coming, but what comes next? The beginnings of sorrows. For who? Obviously for the Jews. And that culminates in the second three and a half years of the tribulation. So, okay, so far, how are we doing? Third question first. Now, at verse 9, 
uh, Matthew 24, 9, God tells his disciples, his apostles, what's going to happen to them. So you have to know, then they will deliver you, he's talking to his apostles, up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. That he's now, he has changed subjects on you. So first he answered the third question, and now he's talking to his apostles, and he's telling them what's going to happen to them. He gives them very specific information. If you want to, you can call it an interlude between his answering of question three and, and question one, because he's going to answer question one next. So this is first. This is second. This is third. So the third question first, the first question second, and the second question third. You got it? If you can get that today, you're on your way. But between the answering of the third question and the first question, the third question first and the first question second, between that, he has this interlude where he tells his apostles, you're going to die. It ain't going to be good. But you're going to win. Yes, sir. What's that? Pizza pulled up. I love it when pizza pulls up. Oh, is it? Is we have the appropriate pizza person going? Okay. I thought for just an instant that somebody on the internet had sent us pizza, and we are very disappointed with you, internet folks. I have to say, I need to let you know that today there is at least seventy-five pizza eaters here. Okay, I stretched that a little bit, but we never know. Maybe we'll get more pizza if I kind of bump it up. But apparently one of our very own bought the pizza, which isn't as good as Internet-given pizza. As you know, that's the best possible pizza ever. Just saying. (laughs) Thank you for announcing that pizza had come. That's very important here. (coughs) Okay, where was I? In between answering, when will the age of the Gentiles end? And the next question that he answers, when will the city of Jerusalem and the temple of Jerusalem be destroyed? He tells the apostles uh, a bunch of stuff. They will kill you. They will uh, they deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. M- uh, many are going to hate you. There's going to be betrayal of one another and hate one another. Many false prophets are going to rise up and deceive many. And there's be lawlessness around because the love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. We'll have to talk about what that means next week. And, and he goes on and tells them that, that uh, uh, the gospel will be uh, preached and the world will, um, will hear it, all, all the nations, and then the end will come. So, understand that he, that's what he's doing there. Now, make sure... I'm in the right place. Did I skip a page? Yes, uh, go ahead and call that an interview. Now, he goes to question number one. His answer to question number one comes second, which is, when will the temple of Jerusalem be destroyed? And this is Hebrews 6, and you can see uh, this appearing, but it's going to get a little bit more difficult. So this is the sign of the fall of Jerusalem. And here's where we have our first real challenge because we've got to combine Matthew 24 with Luke 21. So this is where we have to jump. We have to make this orderly jump now to Luke 21. So go ahead and do that. Go ahead and follow along with me to Luke 21. And we're going to see the answer to the first question or the third question. The first question. Second. 
So, 21, let's start at 5. Verse 5 of Luke 21. Then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another and, and shall not be thrown down. So they asked him, Teacher, but when will these things be? So that is almost identical, is it not, to Matthew 24, 3. And what sign will there be when these things are about to take in place? If you didn't have Matthew 23 along with Luke 21, 7, you wouldn't know there were three separate questions easily. But there are. That's the same three questions. Luke just phrases it uh, slightly differently. So notice the three questions again. Uh, but uh, one more time, without Matthew 24, it would, not, it would be easily passed by without knowing that there are three questions there. So, the answer to question number three, when will the age of the Gentiles, is, comes first here, just like it did in Matthew. Luke 21, 8 through 10. And the answer, again, is world war. And to repeat, because I like repeating the repeated things, as you know, earthquakes, famine, pestilences, and fearful sights, next week. No, not next week. Because we're taking uh, next week off. For you folks on the Internet... Uh, we run up against the holiday again on the weekend, and we have learned that no one from the Internet sends us pizza on that day, and that demotivates us, and we all go out and play in the woods, and it's your fault. <laughs> Maybe that'll work. Uh, so far, I'm, I'm not, I got some donuts from Australia once, but I, I have, I, uh, to be honest, I have, we have had people send us uh, money for pizza, and we immediately, those of you who have sent that money, we have immediately gone out and bought pizza. You can trust that there is a relationship. Uh, we do not uh, tarry. There is no administrative cost. There's no shipping and handling. There, we go right to the pizza place and buy uh, pizza. And we accredit you. Okay. Now, let's read uh, Luke 12, I'm sorry, 21, 12 uh, through 19. And once again, you'll recognize it. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, but it will turn out for, for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will, a- on what you will answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all of your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. So once again, he tells, so after he answers question three, he has this interlude where he tells his apostles what's going to happen to them. Ultimately, they're going to be fantastic. But they're going to die. They're going to be hated. But they're going to win. And he's going to give them amazing intellect. And the evidence is that in what they wrote. So, Christ answers now, Luke 21, 20 through 24. So, let's go to Luke 20 through 24. This is the answer to question number one that he's doing second. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that it is desolate, that its desolation is near. So, they ask him again, when will the age of the Gentiles end? And he says, worldwide war is the answer to that. When will we see Jerusalem and the temple destroyed? He says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. So they actually saw the Roman army come and, and, and surround Jerusalem. Then let those of you 
who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those, just like Lot's wife, by the way, flee to the mountains. Let those of you who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. That's Hebrews 6. What's going on in Hebrews 6? If you ever had any problems with Hebrews 6, you need to know the context for Hebrews 6 is right here. The destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And that will help you understand who it's written to and what is at stake. If you think Hebrews 6 is about your personal salvation, once again, you're mistaken. You cannot lose your salvation. It's impossible. But woe to those who are nursing pregnant, or those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and, the, and wrath upon the people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive unto all nations. Now, as I said last week, I have two sieges of Jerusalem. One by the Roman army, Titus 60 to 70 AD, 66 to 70 AD, and one by the Antichrist. Those are two separate events. It's easy to confuse them. So, he answers now the question, the Roman army surrounding Jerusalem will be the sign that, that the Jerusalem temple will be destroyed. So when you see that, Lot's wife, flee to the mountains. And if we continue to, and in Luke, the answer to question two is next. When will you come as Messiah King? He answers that next. And then after that, Comes what? Do you have your Bibles? What comes next? After he answers those three questions, what comes next? Fig tree. The fig tree parable. Followed by the great snare. And the escape from the snare. So he answers the question, and then he gives them the fig tree uh, a parable, talks to them about the great snare and how you escape from this, this uh, great snare. Okay, and hopefully you've begun to process everything that I gave you so far. I'm going fast, I know, but pay attention to where this fig tree is placed. And if we go back to Matthew, you'll see it in the exact same spot. It's placed after the answer to question number two, after his third answer. Got it? Test on Friday? Okay. See, so, back we now go to Matthew 24. Don't feel bad if, you, if this is confusing you. Uh, it won't eventually. Look at Matthew 24, 32. After he talks about his second coming. See what he does up there? Um, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then... Everyone will, the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That is his answer to when he's coming. That is the third answer to the second question. And then what comes next in Matthew? The parable of the fig tree. He says, now learn this parable from the fig tree. I answered you three questions, but you better learn this answer, this parable of the fig tree. And it's placed immediately, immediately subsequent to God's third answer to the Apostle's second question. And I've intentionally worded it that way because I want you to get used to that language so that you know when you're reading this, uh, third question first, second question third, first question second. 
Okay, finally we get to the point. Matthew 24, 36. This is the but concerning. He gives you the parable and then he says, but concerning. And he gives you the ninth step of the Hebrew patrol ceremony. So there's your order. He answers the third question first. Then he talks to his apostles. He answers the first question second. After he's done that, he answers the second question third. Then he gives you the fig trees. And now he changes the subject to the ninth step of the Hebrew betrothal ceremony, which is the rapture of the church. That's how he does it. Clearly, it's a rapture event. Jesus is changing subjects. And then he goes for, to Noah, marrying, a flood, drinking, eating, a field, a mill, taken, left. And then you go back to Luke 17:26. I could read it, but we don't have time today. It's Noah, Lot, a house, a field, Lot's wife, a bed, grinding mill, field, and vultures. That's how it's going. That's your order. That's how we're placing them together. In two weeks, I will then get you back to Lot's wife. So let me conclude with that by asking, who, who's supposed to remember exactly? He tells somebody, I'm ordering you to remember Lot's wife. Who is he telling that to? And then exactly when do they see Lot's wife? And they have to remember it. So when does remember Lot's wife happen? And exactly what about Lot's wife are they supposed to remember? Are they supposed to remember uh, being buried in salt? By the way, do we have any physical evidence that she was buried in salt? Do we have the body? Do we have any, any forensics? We have somebody's eyewitness testimony. What does it mean? But let me not get into that. Was she... Um, let me ask it this way. When she was taken out of Sodom by the hand of God, by the angels of God, they were, they were uh, uh, messengers of God. They took her by the hand and brought her out of the snare, if you will. I'll give you a hint right there. Because we're going to have to get into snares. They took her out of the snare. Did she, get, did she run back and get caught in the snare? Which would mean, did she lose her what? She was saved from the snare. Is she subject to the snare once she's saved from it? It's impossible. You can physically die, but you cannot lose your salvation. That's the lesson of Hebrews 6. So you have to ask yourself, what is meant by the taking of the hand detail that is in there in Genesis 19? Jesus is in his saving mode, his first descent, for lack of a better term, when he says to these folks, remember Lot's wife. So ask yourself, who, who's getting saved by that? He's saying, remember, I took her by the hand. Does Christ release to doom those whom he has taken out of the snare by the hand? Is that consistent with any doctrinal truth that you know in the Bible? Are you trying to say to me that the blessed hope is that some are going to be dropped and they're going to fall into the snare? He can't quite keep his hand on everybody. Be ready to defend that. And I repeat the repeating of these repeated questions. 
for the purpose of prompting you to connect the fig tree to Noah. Connect Noah to Lot. Connect Lot to the field, the housetop. Connect the housetop to remember Lot's wife. Connect it all to the three questions. And if you get that part correctly, then the vulture eagles are really easy.